When I look back over my life and my ministry, I will look back fondly over the times that my wife and I have had to grace your presence and to share Jesus with you as we have come to know and love him and to hear that you have prayed for us and every once in a while I'll get an email from one of you and a postcard, not a postcard, but a a note saying that you're grateful for the ministry that we are engaged in, and it, it is truly a wonderful thing. And I sincerely hope that our Father in heaven will continue to bless your elders, your shepherds here, and Doug and his great family in the work that God has called them to, and that one day you and I will see God's face in peace, and he will say to all of us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things, but I'll make you ruler over many. Enter the joy of your Lord, and what a great day that will be. The message that I want to share with you this morning is one that uh, really tugs at my heart, and I wanted to use the, the picture in those words to call your attention at what happens normally at 36, 37, uh, 38,000 feet in the air. That international call of distress that came from a Frenchman who designed that whole notion to uh, help people on the ground in the country of France to know when uh, their pilots were in distress. I think the greatest flight experience that I've had to date was when I flew from Rome to New York with the Harlem Globetrotters. And... um, I kept trying to tell the stewardess that I was not a globetrotter, and um, they were doing something special for them up in first class, and I said, ma'am, I'm not a a globetrotter. She said, look, I've been told to come get y'all, okay, so you're going to come with me. And I said, well, what's going on in first class? She says, well, we have linen, and I said, let's go. So I, I, I go up to first class, and I get to hang out with the globetrotters, and I'm taking pictures. I get to go up, and those of you who have been on a 747 know that you ascend that spiral staircase, and you can actually go into the pilot's cabin. And I'm I'm telling you, boy, that that was really something. And before we landed, there was a grandfather with his granddaughter, and I kept telling them the whole time that I was not a globetrotter, and he fussed at me and made me uh, give his granddaughter my autograph. And right before we landed... Uh, the pilot asked all of the globetrotters to stand again, and I did not stand up. And he said, well, how dare you? You're not a globetrotter. I said, I've been trying to tell you that all along, you know. But uh, <clears throat> because of them, I had a tremendous experience in first class. I didn't know people did some of the things that they do in first class and eat on China and all of that. That was pretty cool. But I also noticed that being that high up in the air, I don't recall one argument. I didn't hear one person raise their voice to another person. Everybody was so kind and so friendly. I mean, you would have thought that we were in Mayberry. It was absolutely incredible. It was amazing. And I thought it would really be nice if we could capture this sentiment and have people live that way at ground level. It seems to be that we've learned that lesson everywhere with the exception of the marriage cockpit. 
And in the marriage cockpit, I'm sorry to say that there is so much drama. There is so much arguing and finger pointing and posturing and yelling and whining. As these planes continue to crash around us. In the final analysis, it really doesn't matter who was at fault because everybody on the plane is dead. And what I find the most disturbing, brothers and sisters, is even within the body of Christ. All of us have our own 747s. Now, I know Donald Trump thinks that he's the only one that has his little name on the side of his plane. He's not the only one. Because if you're married this morning and that great couple that's now engaged, they too will soon have their name emblazoned on the side of their plane. And it will be the responsibility of the husband and wife to work in that cockpit to get from point A to point B. There are people that fly in the plane that my wife and I work on and work in. There are loved ones in your plane. And before this message ends today, before you walk off of this property today, even in this great city, there will be planes crashing all around us. Families suffering irreparable harm. And why? Lack of teamwork in the cockpit. No, I want to do it this way. No, I want to have it that way. And no, I want this. And no, I want that. And all these gauges and lights are going off. And the plane is going down. And people are going to their death because they're going to be right. Children in the back are screaming, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy, please stop fighting. And the National Transportation Safety Board will will memorialize everything that happened with that crash. And people will read about what happened. What's going to happen to your family? What's going to happen to mine if we don't learn how to get along in the marriage cockpit? Why are so many marriage 747s crashing in the Lord's church? I would like to submit to you two points before we turn and start reading In Ephesians chapter 4, I believe one of the major reasons that we're having so many planes go down in the Lord's church is because of pilot fatigue. Those of you who have actually been into a 747 cockpit know that there is no way that one person can control all of those dials and gauges. It just it's just not going to happen. Somebody says, well, it's going to take more than a pilot and a co-pilot too. I know that. Just humor me, all right? But what I'm finding in the Lord's church, what I mean by pilot fatigue is I'm seeing more and more of our sisters trying to fly this plane with no help from their husbands. Now, I I don't mean here in Alabama. I'm I'm talking about what's going on in Florida. Because y'all don't know anything about this. But in Florida, we seem to have a real serious issue with men showing up for work. And our congregations are full of women who want to be led. They want their children to be fed. They want to go to heaven. They want a spiritual man. He's home in bed. And she's in the assembly 
silently crying, asking God for divine help and guidance. Y'all know anything about that? I just ran into a man a couple of days ago. I was sitting on the couch, minding my own business, and they both, they just started arguing with each other. (laughs) And my mother-in-law said, did y'all know that that my son-in-law is a Christian counselor? The first words out of his mouth was, I don't need no counseling. I thought, uh, yeah, you don't need counseling. You need Jesus. That's what you need. (laughs) Here the woman is backing up the U-Haul trailer to the house, and you're saying, I don't need no counseling. That could very well be true. But that's the picture that we paint. See, we're going to fix everything. Every man is going to fix everything in the world. We're the Cliff Huxtables. We fix everything but ourselves. And somebody says, well, you know, just because you're a counselor, you know, you think you're going to come in here and try to fix me? Wrong answer. If anybody tries to tell you anything other than Jesus is the one who can help you, you need to close the door and run to the nearest exit. Jesus is the answer, period. And you and I need to come to understand that that is very, very true. But I continue to bump into these sisters who are burning the candle at both ends because they don't have help. They don't have support. They don't have the wind beneath their wings. Thank God, as I look around this morning, I see just about more men here than women. This is, this is odd. And y'all know I'm telling you the truth. You go into some congregations, all you see are sisters. Because they're going to show up even if we don't show up. But I do believe that that's one of the reasons why we have a lot of planes crashing around us. In the second place, I believe that there is improper training that goes on. Join me uh, presently in Proverbs chapter 12. I want to take a quick look at this verse, Proverbs chapter 12. At verse number four, the Bible says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. If we could just get our brothers and sisters to start pulling from the same end of the rope, to understand that it's about complementing each other, not competition with each other, then God has an opportunity to be glorified in our homes. But these two concerns, and I'm I'm not going to flesh them out any further than that because there's some other things that I want to show you in the scripture that I believe is germane to my subject this morning. 80% of the plane crashes that occur in this country occur on takeoff or landing because that's when the plane is most vulnerable, is on takeoff and prior to landing. And the same could be said for marriage. We have people who put more emphasis on their wedding than they do their marriage. Say amen when you can. I go to these weddings, and I'm telling you, by the time I get to the reception, I can see the parents over in the corner taking out a second mortgage for everything that they paid for. And when I pull the guy aside, my first question is, how many books have you read to prepare your mind and your heart to marry this woman? Who knows three times, who has a vocabulary is three time, that's three times your size? How many books have you read? Duh. 
I was supposed to read? <laughs> yes, you were supposed to read. How many books have you read? Well, Brother Davis, I don't need to read any books. See, I'm, I, I know how to romance my wife. You do. Good. Then here's a sheet of paper, and I want you to sketch out the male genitalia, and I want you to sketch out the female genitalia, and I want you to explain to me what a woman goes through when she has menses. You explain that to me, since you're so up on it. You better start reading. You better get on your knees. You better get in your prayer closet and ask God to give you the grace and to give you the mercy and to give you the understanding to study the most complex creature on the planet. This woman has antennas that come out of her head. She can see, she can see in the back without even turning around. She can hear a voice through walls and know when kids are going through drawers and they're not even supposed to be in there. And you're not reading? Well, what is she, some kind of creature? Yes. Yes, yes, she is. Yes, she is. She is a special vessel that if you do not prepare your mind and your heart for, you're going to miss a blessing. So, brother, wherever you are that indicated that you're engaged, you need to start reading. If you want want a book list, I'll be more than happy to give you at least 30 books that you need to start reading like yesterday. Then you will thank me later. (laughs) What are we going to do about this? It's real easy to talk about all of the planes crashing and guys not doing this and women not doing that and people fussing. But what's the answer? I believe that I found some answers in the book of Ephesians. I would like for you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to lift out some principles that we can apply to our relationships Uh, If you've seen the movie Fireproof, that's a pretty good movie. And I kind of like some of the tenets that came from that movie. One of the things that came out of that movie was the the love dare. Uh, And guys, if you haven't done that, I would just encourage you to purchase that treatise and just do those things that's mentioned in that book. It will do wonders for you. Your wife doesn't have to do the love dare. I'm saying we need to do it. We are the ones that need to develop this surrendered spirit. We are the ones that need to be the Prince Charming to our wives. We are the ones that when they look at us, they just, ooh, you know, they just fall apart. But we need to be working on ourselves. And I'm here to tell you, I work on myself every day. My wife is fussing at me now. Why are you bringing another book in this house? Where are you going to put it? I said, well, you're going to buy me some more bookcases and you're going to put the bookcase. I can put the bookcase right here and then I can. She said, you need to get the ones off the floor and put them there. I said, yeah, but yeah, but this one has great concepts and principles. Please buy me this book. You know, that's how I get most books because I ask her to buy them. I mean, it's it's a great concept. I'm in Ephesians chapter four. I want you to look at this first principle with me that emerges at verse number 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I find it fascinating that we make every application of this text within the body of Christ with the exception of the husband and wife. I I have a problem with that. I need to be making this application to the relationship that I have with Shorty. And the the principle is cultivate complete honesty. 
Did y'all hear what I said? Cultivate complete honesty. When you look back at verse number 22 in the same chapter, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. That word deceit comes from the word pseudos or pseudo. People that end up using this business of pseudo as a relational tool to separate themselves from their mate. Rather than being honest and truthful and laying things on the table, we would prefer to play games with them. I don't know if I told you guys this or not, but if I did, I'm going to tell you again. When I got married, I was $15,000 in debt. $15,000 in credit card debt. And I was minding my own business one evening, and I heard this blood-curdling scream come from from the back room, and I knew she had found my bills. Bill Davis! And I thought, oh, yes. Honey, what, 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 what do you do? I mean, all of this adds up to $15,000. I said, yeah. She said, why didn't you tell me about this? I said, tell you about this for what? These are my bills. She said, honey, we're, we're married. Now these are, these are my bills too. Why, why didn't you tell me? Well, you know, it's a guy thing. Now see, that, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Don't you think that she should have known going in? Somebody said, yeah, she probably wouldn't have married you. Well, okay, that, that's probably true too. But all I'm saying to you is as you develop your relationship, please let honesty be the guiding force. I was more concerned about her looking at me in a negative light than laying all my cards on the table. We need to learn how to be honest, especially in this relationship. Anybody that washes your clothes knows you, don't they? And especially with women. I don't even know why we have to tell y'all anything. Y'all already know before we ask you. I guess that's what drives me crazy. You already know the answer before we ask. Maybe you just want us to say it, you know. But I do like this notion. Cultivate complete honesty. You and I have to have relationships that are real. They're not plastic. They're not made up. They're not Hollywood. But they're actually real. Ladies, when you look at this guy and you think that, that he's the best thing since sliced bread and, ooh, he takes you out and, ooh, he loves you one of these days, you're going to find out that he has halitosis. One of these days you're going to find out when you wash his socks that, ooh, you know, they're going to knock you out. There are all kinds of things that go with being married. And this, this Hollywood movie mentality, people just need to get out of that. And we need to look for real substantive ways to be honest with one another. Here's the second point that I found in this text. I'm in verses 26 and 27. Well, the Bible says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. The principle here is to express anger in appropriate ways at the right time. Now, you'll notice that Paul did not say, never be angry. I mean, that's, that's not even being realistic. 
But he is saying that we need to learn how to express our anger in appropriate ways at the right time. The key tool for me is to listen without becoming defensive. Now, sisters, do yourselves a favor. If your husband is trying to listen to you and he's trying not to be defensive, don't say to him, well, I know that you're being defensive. Don't do that. If the man is trying not to be defensive, give him at least the benefit of the doubt. Say amen when you can. This is, this is, this is really, really crucial. You have to be able to express your anger in appropriate ways at the right time. And at the right time is not in the middle of dinner when you're out in public. You can't be talking about how angry and bent out of shape you are so everybody and his brother can hear the whole conversation. Look for the appropriate opportunity to do so. Now, again, I, I remember my wife being upset and, and, and I'd go to bed. See, because I was going to bed. I, I didn't know what she was going to do, but I was going to bed. So I'd go to bed and I'd wake up 35 minutes later. There she is sitting in the middle of the bed with her arms folded, light still on. I said, what are you doing? <clears throat> well, I... I, 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 I sense that we need to talk about some things. I said, well, you do all the talking. I'm going back to bed. Turn back over, go back to bed, wake up 45 minutes later. She's still sitting there with the lights on. And until I turned over and we talked about whatever it was that we needed to talk about, then the lights could go out and, you know, life would go on. See, that's, what, that's how God blessed me to be married to someone who was interested in trying to do things God's way. This is not easy. Those of you who have been married more than two hours know that it takes work. Express your anger in appropriate ways at the right time. And don't give the devil an opportunity. When, if, if I had tried to get through the night without dealing with those concerns, the evil one would have been able to create this wedge between me, between me and my wife. That's all he wants is just one wedge. He's just looking for one little sliver that he can use to start separating you. Then he'll just start tapping. He'll tap for years. As long as he can keep you apart, as long as he can keep you away from each other, then he ends up winning. In the third place, look there at verse number 28 in chapter 4. Well, the Bible says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Now, when you look at that passage of scripture on its face, you would instinctively say, this has nothing to do with me. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. This has everything to do with everybody under the sound of my voice because the principle is don't steal from your mate. Just don't do it. You see, again, I am sensitive and empathic with everyone other than my wife. Here are some specific things that I mean. I steal from my wife when someone else encroaches on time that I promised to her. Guys, let me tell you something. If you make a commitment to do something with your wife, to be somewhere with your wife, you and I need to honor that. 
And it's real easy in the body of Christ for us to summarily dismiss our mate because we have to be sane elsewhere and go put out other fires. All I'm telling you is I know too many preachers who have run off with secretaries and deacons' wives and everybody else because while you're out doing the Lord's work, somebody's up in your house. Don't tell me this doesn't happen. It does happen. And it is just as important for you and I to continue to date our wives and to spend time with them and for them to make certain that they know they are still the one for us. Don't tell me this is not important. This is very important. I see these young preachers flying in and out of these places all the time. Hey, Brother Davis, I'm flying down from Virginia and I'm going to be here for two weeks. Where's your wife at? Oh, she's home with the chariot. Oh, okay. Uh, did you call her today? Well, no, no, no. I, I, I had to study. I said, look, I should snatch you out of your exoskeleton. What are you doing? You haven't sent her a card? And don't get on that email. I said, send her something of substance. Talk to her. Have you told her that you loved her? Well, now, Brother Davis, I don't have time for that because I, I have to prepare. You know, It's a recipe for disaster. And somebody says, well, just because you travel everywhere with your wife, everybody don't have to do that. That's, that's very true. That's very, very true. And I'm glad I was smart enough several years ago to start doing it the way that I've done it. Because sisters have been encouraged when they see my wife standing with me. What she does is just as important as what I do. Probably even more so. But I steal from her when I have to see everybody in the brotherhood other than my wife. That's not going to happen with me. And you know what I told the folks at Arlington? Now, y'all brace yourself. I said, you know what? Don't you call my house after 11 o'clock unless it's an emergency. Well, you're supposed to be an elder. I can call you anytime. Don't call me after 11 unless it's an emergency. The other elders that I work with, they never sleep. You can call them. And then they will call me. All I'm saying is that you and I need, you you need to know what works for you and what doesn't work for you. All I'm saying is that I am not going to steal from my wife when I have given her my word of honor that I was going to spend time with her. By George, that's what I'm going to do. I steal when I give my very best at work. My very best at the assembly. And when I get home, I have nothing left for her. That's not right. That's sinful. I'm out counseling and I'm out doing this and I'm out doing that. And I walk through the door and the first thing she asks me, honey, how was your day? Don't ask me how my day was. That's unacceptable. I have nothing left in the tank for the one who kissed me when I left and wants to embrace me when I come through the door. What is wrong with me? I'm stealing from her is what I'm doing. Now, guys, if you can sit there and hear this and not be convicted in your heart, then something's wrong with you. We have stolen from our wives. Don't tell me we haven't done it. I'm not saying that you may have, you've deliberately done it. I'm just saying we need to work on this. I steal when I reveal something she asked me to hold in confidence and I just, it just slips out of my mouth. That's stealing. 
I'm, I'm stealing when she tells me about an area of vulnerability in her life, something that causes her fear and concern, and then I turn and use it against her. That's stealing. That's wrong. And then we wonder why our wives stop asking us about what's troubling us because we just want them to get over it because we're just not going to talk to anybody because we can do it ourselves. Sometimes that's the best help that you'll ever have is your own mate. We need to stop stealing from them. I steal from my wife when she messes up and I say, I forgive you, but I keep bringing it up. Now, I know y'all don't know anything about this. I I know y'all have never heard this concept before, but in Florida, we have a real issue with this. And people come in and they want to talk and I tell them, let's go to the cross. Did you say that you forgave her? Yeah, that's what I said. Well, did you forgive her or not? Well, at least for two hours. I said, wait a minute. And why you always want to go and talk about things at the cross? I said, because that's where they make the most sense. Oh, yeah, they do. They make the most sense. And I steal from my wife when something has been exposed and she has asked me for forgiveness and then I use that like a sledgehammer to remind her that's wrong. I steal when I'm not open and honest about my own doubts and fears and concerns. And she asked me, honey, what's bothering you? Nothing. I've seen that look on your face before. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. And don't ask me again. Okay. So, so see, now we're tough. See, now we're going John Wayne on him. See, you know, I'm going to ride on my horse, girl, and, you know, you'll never see me again. She knows. And your wife knows, too. And we will be blessed if we will say, honey, I've been thinking about the way I've been doing this or the way I've been doing that. Do you really think that that honors God? What's your take on that? Well, honey, I'm so glad you, you asked me that because I got some feedback for you. Would you like some feedback? And then when my wife gives me feedback, it's good stuff. I steal when I do not love and cherish her the way Christ expects me to. Is that how you love your wife this morning? Be careful now. Your soul salvation could depend on it. Is that how you love your wife today? Is that how I love mine? Or would you be guilty like me of grand theft? And I don't mean grand theft auto either. I think the way that we treat our mates is more important than how we treat our cars and our golf clubs or our careers. I wasn't expecting an amen on that one. The fourth principle I found is in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed 
for the day of redemption. Guard your speech. You know the word unwholesome, and I know many of you study the Greek here. I just want you to know that I study it too. In that word unwholesome, we should have found a closer word in the English language because that word unwholesome literally means rotting vegetables and rancid fish. That's what it means. And sometimes the words that come out of our mouth are worse than rotting vegetables and rancid rancid fish. Sisters, let me tell you something. You can say, you can say with one word, one phrase, you can cut a guy to his soul where he will almost suffer irreparable harm. Y'all don't know y'all have that kind of power, but you do. When you say things out of anger, like I'm so sorry that I ever married you. You imagine how deep that cuts. It would take Jesus himself to heal that wound. And sometimes we just instinctively come out with these things and our children hear these things come out of our mouths and they look at us like, how can you be a Christian and even talk like that, Dad? Mom, I thought you loved Dad. How could you even fix your mouth to say that? We just need to set a guard. We need to guard our speech. We need to be very, very careful. In the love dare, day number five, The words are found, real love minds its manners, because that's what it does. It minds its manners. And then the last principle I found, verses 31 and 32, the word says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The principle here is to be nice. You know, when you're as big as I am, people don't equate niceness with somebody this size. They always think that I have to come in with the hatchet, you know. Oh, here comes Brother Davis, you know. Now we're really going to get it, you know. I need to work on that. I, I, I am being a kinder, gentler preacher in these days. I still scream, but I scream out of passion and concern. But I still need to work on being more kind. And so when these young people, especially the real small children, come up to me and look at me and say, I really like you, you don't know what that means to me. Because they're as close as anybody will ever get to Jesus. And if they can come up and say, I don't care what my daddy says, I still like you. See? (laughs) See, because they bring all these reports, especially from the people that sit in the back. No, just kidding. Just kidding. But if a little child can come up and say, Brother, Brother Davis, I, I just, I'm going to pray for you that God will help you to be a better preacher. That means the world to me. It means that somehow or another I'm working on this kindness notion. But if we were to ask your wife this morning, are you married to a kind Christian leader? What would she say? without being put in the doghouse. What, you know, could she speak freely? Sisters, are you being kind to your husband today? When people walk into your home, does it feel like the Siberian desert? What does it feel like? You set the tone and you set the barometer in the home. 
Your husband doesn't. You do. But all I'm saying with regard to this principle is that I need to learn how to be nice. Kindness is love in action. Love makes you kind. And kindness makes you lovable. When you're kind, people want to be around you. They see you as being good to them and good for them. We need to learn how to be kind to each other. I want to close this morning by encouraging all of us to love our mates through the seasons of life. In the study and research that I've done, and I, I know that it's, it's, uh, it all depends on who you read and who you follow, but I've come to believe that there are four seasons in marriage. And that first season is the season of romance. It's, it's where these guys are when they look at each other and they just, everything is just so wonderful. It's just so magnificent, you know. He can't do any wrong, mom. Honey, open your eyes. No, mom, you just don't understand, you know. The season of romance, it's absolutely incredible. You're on cloud nine every day. You can run through walls and why work? You know, just love. I mean, come on. It's the season of romance. And then from romance, you go to the season of reality and you wake up one day and you go, who are you and why are you in this house? You know. Because reality clarifies what love conceals. And then all of a sudden you do realize that marriage is not one long necking party. Somebody has to go to work. And you have to pull from the same end of the rope. And there may be disagreements, but you have to work through those disagreements. And when issues come up, you have to reflect the love of Christ that you've learned. And you just have to do it together. The season of reality. And then you go from the season of reality to the season of resentment. And the object of our affection becomes the target of our frustration. When, if issues have not been dealt with, then all of a sudden they become magnified. And some little innocent joke or some little innocent tap all of a sudden becomes assault. And where, no, I do not want to stay in the same room with you. I don't even want to be in the same house with you. I don't even want to be in the same state with you. We say these things and we try to be hurtful because we have been hurt or something hasn't been dealt with. And if we're not careful, it's in the season of resentment that people can actually go their separate ways even though they're still living in the same house. And the children know. They know better than anybody But thank God there's a season of rebuilding. And in the season of rebuilding, people do go to the cross. They do ask for forgiveness. They do find a brother or sister who has been there and done that, and they get some help. And they watch God help them rebuild their relationship to the glory and the honor of God. In the short time that I've shared with you this morning... There's a strong possibility that there have been some marriages that have already crashed and burned. 
there's a strong possibility that someone came to the assembly this morning very frustrated and upset about what was going on in your home. I would just beg you with a heart of love and concern this morning to turn your eyes on Jesus. He's the only one who can make a definitive difference. If you're here this morning and you're not a New Testament Christian, if you're here this morning and you don't share the religious conviction of churches of Christ, you were not invited here to be insulted. You were not invited here to be thrown under the bus. But you were invited here by some good brother or some good sister who wants to go to heaven and who is willing to reason with you from the scripture. I'm not interested in treating you the way that I used to treat people several years ago, and that's take the Bible and shove it down their throat. Then they could become the, the Pharisee that I already was. Why do that? I've learned better. I do know one thing, that judgment day is coming. And that you and I are going to be judged from the things in this book. And that's why I want to stand on this book. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13, Jesus himself said, upon this rock, upon the confession from Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus promised to build one church. And I don't care what T.D. Jake says. I don't care what Billy Graham says. I don't care what any of them says. It's what this says that matters to me. And those people will have to answer for what they've taught. And so will I. And somebody says, well, I bet you won't tell them that to their face. Uh, you fly me and I will. This is no time for us to be playing games. If it's in the Bible, it should be honored. And I'm sick and tired of people's emotions being taken advantage of when God's word is very clear and very precise with regard to the terms of salvation. In Romans chapter 10 at verse number 17, this is how your Bible reads, if you will follow along with me. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is developed when a person is under the sound of God's word, not under the sound of philosophy, not under the sound of sociology, not under the sound of somebody who has so many degrees more than a thermometer. It's under the sound of God's word. And God's word is what will move a person to either obey or not to obey. I'm turning now to Hebrews chapter 11 at verse number 6. Because in Hebrews chapter 11 at verse number 6, the Bible says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And I love the second half of the phrase that we don't talk that much about. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I like the King James translation, those who diligently seek him. That could be somebody here this morning. That was what my wife was several years ago when she went to the University of Florida. She loved God. She loved his word. She was brought up in a denomination. When she went to a New Testament church and those people opened the Bible and those people showed her what the Bible says, she found it so attractive, she came up out of there. 
I'm turning now to Luke chapter 13 at verse number three. And somebody says, well, that, that, that's, just, that's just your interpretation of what those passages of Scripture say. If you'll give me time while they're back there eating physical food, I'll be more than happy to sit down with you and reason with you from God's word. That will be my lunch. I would love nothing more than that. Luke chapter 13 at verse number 3. Jesus says, I I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They were trying to have this argument and discussion about what happened to those people uh, that Pilate mingled their blood. You know, were they excused from their actions? Jesus said, look, you need to concern yourself with your own issue. You need to repent. You need to turn your face toward Jesus and toward righteousness and toward holiness. I'm turning now to Matthew chapter 10 at verse 32. Well, the scripture says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. I'm turning to Acts chapter 2 at verse number 38. You and I need to hear God's word. We need to believe God's word. We need to repent of our sin. We need to confess Jesus as Lord. Then we need to be willing to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sin. Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost at verse 38 says... Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I'm finally turning to Revelation chapter 2 at verse number 10. Well, the principle for those who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you and I need to remain faithful to him. Revelation chapter 2 at verse 10, the Bible says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. You know, the evil one has not done too much of anything during this assembly until right now. But I found that even members of the Lord's church squirm and wiggle more than some of our visitors. We grab songbooks and we become a distraction to people who may be giving serious contemplation to what is being said from the word of God. May that never happen in the assembly of Jesus. Because if you're here this morning and for the very first time you've ever heard the gospel laid out the way that it's been laid out this morning, the only natural reaction from a man or a woman of courage is to obey. Don't react. Respond. See, people react when they say, oh, that, you know, that's what that says, but that's not what that means. Because my pastor told me that I didn't have to be baptized. Well, you go get your pastor. Because I want your pastor to tell me, how is he going to take water out of the plant? You can't take water out of the plant. There's so much water in the plant. If you could take your Bible and squeeze it, water will come out. 
When you study in the book of Acts, in those ten examples of conversion, every one of them was immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sin. Who do people think they are to say that we're not supposed to be baptized? I know who it is. It's the devil. You see, because when you're lost and when you want to do what Jesus says, you do what Jesus says. Somebody says, well, well, what if you found out that the church of Christ wasn't right? What would you do? I said, I'd get in what the Bible teaches. That's what I do. This is not about me putting my stake down somewhere where it's not founded on scripture. This is about who's right, not somebody trying to be right. Let God's word be true in every man a liar. It's God's word that's going to make the difference. But those of you who have been listening and who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ really know who this message is for. It's been for us. It's been for those of us who say that we're Christians, say that we love the Lord and we treat our wives like second class citizens. We say that we love Jesus and wives, you treat your husbands as if he's somewhere from Mars. And he can get more attention, and he can get more affirmation, and he can get more encouragement from the street than he can from you. Well, until he does what I tell him to do, I ain't giving him nothing. Well, first of all, your body doesn't even belong to you. Your body belongs to him. Well, you don't tell me what to do. Take it up with Jesus. Read 1 Corinthians 7. Take it up with the Lord. Man, I'm interested in going to heaven. I'm interested in doing what the Bible says, not what anybody else says. If you're here today and you're subject to the Lord's invitation, and we all are, then you let today be the day that you declare to these elders and to this church, especially if you're not plugged in and getting to work, let it start today. I'm so sick and tired of people floating from church to church and they're not plugged in and then they wonder why they can't grow. Man, you got to be accountable. You need to let these elders know. Whatever needs to be done around here, call me. We need to step up to the plate and serve until God calls us home. And one of these days, when we do leave this world, we're going to use the correct terminology, and that is to fall asleep in Jesus, like one of our members did last evening. Would to God that I had been there. But my wife and I had visited her faithfully, but her struggle is over. Thank God she's in the arms of Christ. That's what it's all about. Doesn't matter what anybody says. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what's going on in Washington. It doesn't matter what's even going on in the Montgomery government. What matters is are you right with God? That's what matters. And you're here by divine appointment. And while this good brother leads us in one of my favorite songs, you ask yourself if you've decided to follow Jesus, does Jesus know? while we stand together and sing.